Brent, you, you're eating breakfast in the hot tub? Oh, yeah. What? Okay, I have so many questions about this. There's a bit of a story. Why do we need to clear this up? I'm curious. Well, because uh, it's too distracting to do the show. So you're, you're in a hot tub, mm-hmm. eating breakfast mm-hmm. with your dad and brother. And I just, okay, are you dressed? Are you wearing anything? Oh, just, yeah, you know, a bathing suit or whatever. Okay, all right. So my father is visiting from, you know, Ontario. He's been here for, I don't know, three months. He won't leave. So the one request that he had was that we get a hot tub for him so he could watch the mountains in the morning, which is hilarious. So anyways, his routine now has either been spend time in the evening in it or in the morning, you know, having his breakfast. So wait, 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 wait. So your dad's eating breakfast in the hot tub on an on regular basis, on an ongoing regular basis? Oh, yeah. You know, kids, I'd love to visit, but I, I just can't be bothered and, unless you get a hot tub and then, yeah, okay, I'm there. You know what? The only thing grosser than eating breakfast in a bathtub is eating breakfast in the same bathwater over and over and over again, which sounds effectively like what he's doing here. Oh, but interesting. Now, now I'm picturing three of you eating breakfast in this hot tub. It's just one big bowl of oatmeal, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like... What happens when you, when you drop food? Like, this is horrible. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Um, well, we really screwed up this week. This is, this is a horrible show. Don't listen to this week's episode. I'd probably turn it off right now because... About 10 minutes before we started, we deleted uh, nearly 11, what was it, uh, 10,000 lines? I don't know. We basically destroyed our Thousands entire show doc. characters. And decided to throw the topic out. We had gathered together today to talk about IPFS. We spent the week going deep into IPFS, watching YouTube videos, reading articles, trying out different applications, hosting websites, deploying on different machines. And we decided to throw all of that away and not do it this week. We're going to do it in the future, but we realized that the topic was deep enough. It was like asking us to explain HTTP and distributed network storage in one episode, and then going into the things that are good about it and the things that are bad about it, which there are plenty on both sides. So we decided to instead to break that off into its own thing in the future. We'll give you an update that on that soon. And instead, we just have a ton of stuff that we want to cover this week anyways. It, we were looking at it and realized we had two shows in one. And so we decided we just weren't really going to give you the best show on IPFS today, but we can give you a good episode if we focus on the other stuff. Hey, that means there's still time to send us feedback if you have thoughts on uh, how we should talk about IPFS or if you got some some tips for us. Yeah. Maybe before we get into the remainder of the zombie doc this week, I want to mention the Jupiter Broadcasting East Coast meetup. I think it's been since like 2014 since we've made it out there. And it's on, it's happening Saturday, April 9th, 2022 in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're going to meet up at a park. I think it's just outside of Raleigh. You know, I'm not a, not a location expert, but you generally, if it's right next to a big city, you say the big city's name, you know, but we got the address 403 Nightdale station run. There you go. So it's Nightdale, North Carolina. Don't even heard of that. See, nobody or Kingdale. What is that? Wes, get in there. Is that Nightdale? I can't read. I got a bad eyes now. I'm 40. Either way, you go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcast. I don't even know why you're listening to me. You're not going to remember it anyways. So we have all the details up there. Yeah, there's a button you can click. You commit to going right there. Let us know. I think it's going to be a banger, as they say. Uh, Wes Payne's going to be there. Everybody everybody knows Wes Payne. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, he take a deep breath Woo! with a pause because he's like, I haven't booked the flight yet. I had not, but I'm going to go. <laughs> Alex does have a couch for you, though. Ooh, that's amazing. So you can save a little money there. Brent's going to be there on one of those couches, too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Brent will be there. And our buddy, Michael Dominic from the Coda Radio Program is going to be what? there. What? Yep, yep. Of course, Alex from Self-Hosted will of be there. Of course. So uh, it's really coming together. And we get, looks like we're going to have, so far, about 50 people have said they're coming from the community. But I'm starting to suspect it's going to be more than that since we still have about a month before it kicks off. So join us in North Carolina on April 9th. Uh, we want to see you. And I, I am trying to mention this ahead of time because I want you guys to understand my motivation for kind of mentioning this every episode for a bit is we have people who sometimes are a month or two behind. And so they hear about a meetup that's in their area a month after it's happened. So I try to get ahead of it as much as I can when we can uh, and let you know what's coming. So now with the standard meetup announcement out of the way, I want to, I want to start today's episode by talking about our each individual thoughts on how to engage with an open source developer to give them some sort of feedback or to ask for a bug fix in a project that you're working on. All three of us have recently had an experience with this. Um, Wes, I think, really got us thinking about this last week uh, when he mentioned his experience. I also recently had an experience uh, asking for something. I asked for a developer who had created a hosted bot that runs on his server. I asked him to dockerize that up and make a few modifications to make that you know possible to self-host. And, you know, it's kind of a big ask, right? I'm going in there and I'm asking, hey, I know this isn't really adding a feature and you maybe have, an, you have a whole strategy here, but I'd sure use and trust your application a lot more if I could self-host it. Yeah, I have no interest in all the stuff that you're setting up over there, but can I just copy it and run it myself? And I felt a little um, apprehensive about asking for that. It felt a little selfish. Like, you know, who am I, right? This asking this developer to divert their time. So I'll tell you how, how I handled that and kind of how I made that happen. And it worked out for the best. But I, I thought maybe we'd start with Brent this week. And Brent, I wanted to start, how would you ask an open source developer for a fix? And then could you tell us about your recent bug squashing adventures that you've been on for the last week? Sure. Yeah, I have a little story actually that happened in the Telegram chat this week. Stay a while and listen. I was really diving into trying to do some bug testing. Uh, Ubuntu, we mentioned, was having their bug testing week. And I thought, geez, I've been trying to do that for a few years, and I'm really going to dive in this week. Nice. In the process, I ran into what I feel is a little speed bump for myself. Um, I was using Wimpy's lovely QuickEMU to try to get some VMs up and running to do to run these daily images. And I had an issue with copy and pasting, despite following all of the suggestions on how to get that up and going. You know, copy and pasting between the VM and my you know, native machine. You had read the docs. Oh, many <laughs> times over the last few months. Um, and so I thought, geez, I, maybe this is something people struggle with in our community. And I wonder, I, I'd like to hear what you guys think, but I feel like I'm not the most technical person in our community and outside of our community. That says a lot because typically I am, but I often struggle with, you know, it's a Wimpy's app. He's a friend. He's a friend of ours. And so I could just like message him and say, Hey, Wimpy, I'm struggling with this thing. Can you help me out? But philosophically, I felt like, well, I don't, Wimpy probably doesn't want everyone to go and, you know, DM him about a little problem they're having with an app that he's worked on. So I thought, okay, well, how else would I do this if I didn't know Wimpy? And so I went into our community and I said, hey, I know there's people who use this app, you know, QuickEMU. It's, a, you know, a little outside my pay grade as far as what it's doing under the hood. 
And I'm having this really simple issue, and I wondered if anyone could help me. And it actually began this really fascinating discussion. Uh, Lucifer in the chat room helped me, like, wrap some ideas around why it was okay to just, like, DM Wimpy directly in our Telegram group, for instance, and say, hey, I'm having this small little issue. And so I thought, if I was the developer, I wouldn't want to be bombarded with all these, like, you know, single people trying to make me solve the smallest little issues with the software, either because it is a bug or because it's just like a use case that me as the user, I'm not, I haven't figured out yet. You know, there's a learning curve to every single application. I'd be curious to hear what the rationale was, because I also think I would be hesitant. I am every time I reach out to a developer, I am hesitant. So here's my thought on this too, is with free software, you have the opportunity to experience one of the greatest things in software development. And that is you can interact with the developer directly in the right situation, in the right scenario, in the right context, engage with them, and they will actually fix the thing that you're asking about. Like it's such an incredible experience when you are so familiar with the commercial customer experience where you buy a product, maybe they offer support, but you could never ask them to change anything. You could never actually talk to the person creating it. And it's it's such an amazing experience when you have that kind of interaction. Yeah, I mean, right in the commercial world, maybe you have like a, a rep that you talk to and you're sort of like kind of pushing, being like, look, this really causes this problem, but you have no insight into what happens upstream. How does that get prioritized? Are you just a small little fish? Right, because along with doing this process, there's generally a public bug tracker so you can watch the status of your thing. And that's, even if it's not going anywhere, it's at least more access than you normally get. But to properly navigate this, I think, Brent, you do have to go in with a little bit of caution like you did. I think you have to kind of suss out how does this developer prefer to be approached? And I may actually start, if I figure out how to contact them in a way that feels like it's appropriate, I may actually start with the question of, what is your preferred way for me to ask for help or file a bug? Not here's my problem, but hey, I know you're busy, so I need to, I'd like to file this issue because I'd like to help you fix it. But uh, what's the best way for me to do that? And not actually starting with the problem, but starting with the question of how do I go about asking the problem? Yeah, I hadn't considered that because I figured giving a, a small synopsis of what was going on would be helpful. But I think you're right. Every project seems to have a different preference on where to solve various problems. You know, a bug tracker is not the right place to ask a very simple, you know, usage question. Some projects have IRCs for that or discords and other technologies to just get people connected for really simple questions. And so I think actually that's very simple and yet really good advice. So thank you. Yeah, I think it's like um, sort of an, an empathy thing of trying to understand some projects will have that spelled out. Other times you might need to explicitly ask because they don't yet have documentation established that might tell you where to go with that you know, which communities or forums or methods they prefer for what types of communication. The other thing is sometimes projects have been around a while and they just have a legacy of different trackers or different places for community online. And so it's like, okay, which one do I do I actually engage with? That can sometimes be a problem for podcasts too. So how does it, how did the whole uh, bug squashing thing go and how did it go with Wimpy? Tell us more. Did I, you squash any I feel bugs? like there's a, there is a conclusion to this story. Yeah, I think it's an adventure and I don't think it ever concludes. So, um, for the small story with Wimpy, I actually had this discussion after bedtime um, where he's at, and he never got back to me, I think, because probably it went into a totally different place. You know, my original question actually evolved into a discussion about something else, which he may have been interested in. Maybe he didn't, didn't even see it. Um, 
And I just got around the copy and pasting problem because I wanted to keep going on the project. So that's where that landed. So if anyone has any ideas on how to help me with that, I'd love to hear. <laughs> so now he's turning to the audience. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because that was my original approach in the Telegram group. And, and there was some great suggestions there. Um, there was a good point that was made during that discussion, which was sometimes reaching to the community for some help on a project is sometimes detrimental because you can get information that leads you to a workaround that maybe the project doesn't necessarily think is the best solution to your problem. And that is kind of what I ended up finding, you know, on the stack exchanges and stuff like that, you end up with these potential solutions to your problem, but they're kind of hacky sometimes. And getting the answer from the project itself is probably far better. You know, there's a very interesting thing happening right now in the home assistant community where the project is recommending, you're laughing at me, Wes, but the project is recommending that people migrate from the old Z-Wave implementation integration to Z-Wave JS. And they've even created a wizard and they've been pretty clear about it for the last six months. And they made an implicit recommendation in the last home assistant release. And in the next home assistant release, they're going to break the old Z-Wave integration. So you really got to migrate. And when you go look, when you go look up how to do this migration, what you'll find, especially on Reddit, is a bunch of people telling you to do something completely different than what the project recommends. A lot more complicated, requires a lot more skill sets. It requires understanding MQTT, and it's a whole different world. And it, there's no, like, really simple migration wizard that they've set up. Uh, and it's just, it's like, because things become tribal knowledge, like, this is how you do something. And so when new people come along, like, there's almost just, like, so much momentum behind recommending something. And sometimes what happens is the project changes, right? They pivot. They choose a new direction, and the community doesn't necessarily change with them. It could be saying something as well about really great project documentation. I feel like some projects have such great documentation that's so up-to-date that that tends to be the go-to for this kind of knowledge. But I've often ran into projects who maybe have some stale documentation, or it's not clear in its descriptions. And so often the community has to kind of use these other strategies to suggest fixes where the project isn't kind of giving the information that's required. So I wonder if as a project that might be a, a place to put energy where it makes it far easier for end users to accomplish the things the project, you know, the direction the project wants to take, to take them in. seems like sometimes there's also a sort of dichotomy between what's happening in the pure upstream development and the various use cases downstream it just makes me think of GNOME and plugins and, you know, like there may be something that the upstream is not really interested in continuing development work on, but the community has, you know, community continues to rely on or thinks is worth continued support. That's, <laughs> that's a tricky relationship. Turns out, yeah, when you think about it, it probably happens a lot in free software. Humans. I mean, it is one of the benefits. It's just, as we know, software comes with maintenance burdens and expectations. Yeah, I follow what you're saying, but some of that also it just it puts more work on the project. That's why I, I kind of feel like in free software specifically, maybe some of that work should be taken on by the community. Like I'm, I am, when I really want a developer to fix something for me, I feel like the onus is on me to come to them, find them in the most appropriate way possible. And, you know, documentation would be great. Right. But, if, they, if the developer shares a tip on how you might address something, that may be an area where the community and say like, oh, look, yeah, okay, yeah. I can add that to the wiki. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's been making me think recently that we need to like open up a bug tracker for JV, just in general, for feature requests and things like that. So that's something I think we want to talk about. So, you know, just to kind of summarize our thoughts on the topic of this, uh, I when I decided to engage with a developer and ask 
them to dockerize the stuff. I also offered to throw them 20 bucks uh, as a thank you, just because I felt like there, I, I was, it felt awkward at first. Like, Hey, I, you know, I'll give you, I'll throw money at you. But then I thought I can say thank you, but there really is value for my, for, for them like in their time for doing that work. And I'm going to get value out of having that software run on my land indefinitely now. Like it's then all of a sudden, like, 20, 30, 40 bucks felt like hardly anything. And I was extremely appreciative because I started thinking of like, well, how valuable is this to me? And I actually ended up sending them a hundred bucks as a, as a thank you for getting that work done. And, they, and I, I, the other reason why I kind of kicked it up a little bit is because after they did the work, other people came and piled on and started having other issues with it that I felt like we created more work for them. Uh-oh. So that was the other reason I kicked it up a little bit. It's just a way to say thank you. Um, but uh, I want to, while we're talking about value, uh, I want to talk about a really neat experience that I had this weekend. So yesterday, listener Cole came up to Lady Jupes, my RV, to to see Jupes, to meet me in person and the family. And uh, Cole's been a listener for over a decade, perhaps even longer, since perhaps maybe before Dylan was even born. He's now a commercial electrician by trade. He's done the sysadmin thing and still a big geek, loves that stuff. Uh, and our recent conversations about value for value have sort of really resonated with him. He's never really participated in any online community, so he's never been in Mumble or Telegram. He's never emailed into the show, but he's listened to every episode. Wow. And that's not too uncommon. I mean, that's how I am for most of the podcasts I listen Seriously, to. Right? Seriously, same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's the norm. And uh, But, you know, I think for for Cole, he was trying to think of a way to contribute that wasn't just like a financial contribution, but something that, you know, would be another value contribution. And I like this concept a lot because I think it could also be applied to free software. And so I sort of feel like I have felt so down about software development funding, free software development funding since like Heartbleed and that kind of stuff. Mm. And it's starting to turn around when I'm starting to connect these pieces and it's still early days, but I'm starting to see something here. And because it resonated with Cole too, he's like, I want to contribute. I've been listening to JB for over a decade. I've gotten value out of some of the shows. And I wanted to do something for you that's valuable. And I'm a commercial electrician. And he had heard the story about the racking in the RV and chewing up my wiring. So we, we just got our slides fixed over the summer. And then it freezes like a bastard here in the Pacific Northwest. And rats get into my RV and they chew through the wiring and break my slides. <sighs> so I said, well, let me come up and take a look at it. And uh, so, yeah, okay, come up. And he comes up. So I gave him the full tour, but I did a bit more of a focus on the electrical setup and on the uh, solar system. And I explained to him the rat situation. And that the wire they chewed through and that he had fixed. And I showed him that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was obvious that his experience was going to be instantly valuable because he kind of just pretty quickly pieced things together that I wouldn't have understood. And he explained that the way these switches work, there is a multiplexer sitting between the controller and the switches to send the different signals because there's two wires for in and there's two wires for out. Uh-huh. So you have each switch has four wires total that run back to a multiplexer and then the multiplexer just has one wire or two wires going to the controller. So it takes all these wires and multiplexes it down. And I didn't know that, but Cole recognized that right away. And so uh, we started hunting for the multiplexer. Cole's here on the hunt for the multiplexer. Definitely a false floor. If you think so, it could be hidden under there. There is definitely a cavity there, but what I'm thinking that probably actually is, is just, for power and when I'm looking at it it does look like from that wiring harness the, multi- wires, the wires go in two directions so I'm thinking that ah. 
that maybe the multiplexer is behind that panel. Oh. Um, behind the panel itself. Yeah, which would Should make sense. Should we take sense. the panel off? Yeah, I, I was going to see. Okay, let's take it apart then. <laughs> let's just see if, if you guys are okay with me. Yeah. I would also behind like there. Yeah, I'd be curious too to see what it looks like under there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to ring it out, uh, see if I can see continuity between between those connections and see see what we can see. This is a big panel with half a dozen switches on it and LED lights to indicate sensors for tanks and all that kind of stuff. And we've never removed it from the wall, but I've always been curious what it must look like because it's just a ton of different switches and lights and stuff and sensors in one spot. What are you? Yeah. So uh, Cole, Cole also brought like all his own tools because, you know, he knows me. He's listened for a while and he knows I'd, I'm not you very don't, handy. You don't have the tools. <laughs> He's very polite about Just it. Just bring though. what you need, you know? Yeah. So he brought his own set and he had that panel opened up right away and I tell you what we found in there still sits with me right now in an uncomfortable way. Well, your problem is right here. What are you seeing? Oh, oh! Did they get up in the wall then? Oh yeah. Oh my God! What? This is this right here is where your problem is. You did a you did a fantastic job down there. I got to say. I did. Down there on that side, yeah, you did a good job. Good. Yeah. So, so they chewed not only the spot you fixed, Hadia, yeah. but they chewed this area. On, they got on the back of this board and chewed this. They crawled up the wall. Yeah, you can see the wow. You can see the connector here. This is why this this one doesn't work. So what? there's nothing. There's nothing here. Wow. Yeah, and look, there's the sensor. This brown wire here is the sensor wire. That's why the sensor isn't working. Yep. I can see the other end of that wire that they chewed. Yep. So that it's, red guy up there. They they were in everywhere. They got everywhere then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, that is disturbing. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not good. That's I, for sure. I'm surprised other crap isn't busted. Then I just hate that they use this corn uh, coating. I just I just really I get why they do it. They do it because people abandon cars. People leave cars right. around for years right. and years and years and years, and they don't want you know. It, it makes ecological sense. But it's basically building your house out of a snack. Can you believe this? So they they it's corn wiring gingerbread RV over there, huh? and they love it. They love it. Cole's in the chat room right now. He says it's probably mo- oh, not a bunch of rats. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know. I, as far as I ever saw on camera, it's hard to say because I just caught a rat on camera. I don't know if it's you know. You know my uh, my folks had a problem with this one of their cars, but it was like a soy based wire. But same yeah, same thing. Tasty wire covering. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, unbelievable. So then we did a run out to uh, the hardware store, and uh, I, I'm ashamed to admit it. Uh, I don't. I don't own a soldering iron at home. We have one here at the studio. But we did the math, and we're like, do we drive to the studio and, and pick it up, or do we just go to the hardware store that's like five minutes away, and, and I just have one at home, too. So they had a decent soldering iron, but they did not have, like, the best solder options and stuff uh, like that. Oh, yeah, of course not. But he got it all done. Got it, he, he helped Tadia learn how to do some of the soldering, too, was her first experience, and got it patched up, and it's working. It's working. Oh, you're, like, fully back in, back in slide action. Yeah, right? it's... That's a quality of life improvement for us. It's a lot of value. That's, it was huge, and it was so nice of Cole to come up and do that. Well, it's, it's almost the um, coming full circle on just from the past year and a half or longer, right? Like whenever before your whole journey of preparing the slide, like you just, you're actually back yeah. in a fully functional lady oh juice, right? Oh my gosh, man. Oh my gosh. And now I'm ready to like redo the whole tech setup. Um, I'm not exactly sure what hardware setup I'm going with yet, but I'm like getting in that space. I'm, I feel like talked a little bit last week about some of the software I'm going to load, like I a spring it was reload. Be several Mac Studios. Yeah, 
yeah, a couple of Mac Studios running under the under the booth. <laughs> Just about twelve grand of Macs in there. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that should be great. Uh, a lot of horsepower. Of course, I think they probably all would use Intel emulation for all the software. <laughs> yeah, <I> right. use, but, <laughs> <laughs> but wow, it's been great. It's been really great, and I'll have all that figured out soon. I'll get all that. And you know, with Cole too, I was showing him some of my like where I, how I my hack to bring the Starlink and stuff Ooh, like that. Nice, yeah. Showing him ideas I had around cooling. Um, so it's all you know, it's just really great. It, it has been, it has been so like you know, people say uh, you, you know you can you can be wealthy in ways that aren't are not money, but it really feels like that is true when it comes to our community. Yeah, uh, and I think we have been particularly spoiled here in the Pacific Northwest with just some really great people in this area. And then we travel, and you know, every time we're traveling. We hear from people that are offering, you know, hey, I got a driveway. You and can stop in. That's just wild, right? Like mm-hmm. you're in a strange place and yep. you automatically have friends. Crazy people out there. You crazy people. Linode.com slash unplugged. You know, I should, I should uh, call up my friends at Linode and we should talk about uh, having them come join us at the barbecue because they know a great meetup when they see one. They helped us put together the Denver meetup. They were absolutely essential in that. Go sign up at Linode and support the show by going to linode.com slash unplugged. You'll get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account, and you're going to support this here show. Linode's where we run everything up in the cloud these days. I'm in mean everything, everything. And you can start with like a five. This is how I personally started with Linode. I mean, you know, you do you, but I started with like a $5 a month system. I put sync thing on it. I was like, well, I will use this to just move between all of my on-premises stuff. I'm just going to do all on-premises. And I did use it like that for a while. But as I started kind of just understanding more about Linode, the company, the culture, the people behind it, I realized that I could trust it for my business. I could trust it for my mission critical stuff. I could trust it for my wife's business. Like that kind of stuff really is what resonated with me as I just understood it better. Then, you know, as time comes on, it has gone on. I've made friends over there and kind of see the way they work. And I've been watching on some of the things that they're building, like their database is a service product that they're rolling out right now. And you get to choose from 11 data centers around the world and every service level you go with from their $5 a month system to their like crazy bonanza, epic CPUs and MVME storages and all that kind of stuff is, they're going to give you the same great customer support. It doesn't matter. They got the best in the business. And Honestly, I've never really had to rely on it because everything's always been really great for me. But I have heard such a consistent feedback from the audience that, hey, I got in a jam and they really helped me out. I've heard that over and over again and that they've always blown away everybody's expectations. So I like to mention it because I think in a moment when that matters, that's going to be nearly priceless. And they're willing to do that for you with a $5 a month count. That's pretty impressive. So go check them out, try it out, support the show, go learn something, build something, just enjoy the performance. It's just a lot of fun to play with a system that fast and you get a hundred dollars to do it and it's a way to support the show. So it's linode.com slash unplugged. Well, I think it's that time again. Feedback. Ray wrote in this week talking about experience with free and open source software. Wes's recent positive experience working with an open source project inspired me to share my own. After setting up Tailscale on all my machines to experiment with mesh networking, I took an interest in Headscale, the open source version of the Tailscale control plane. Everything was working pretty great, but I ran into an issue adding a particular machine and went to the GitHub repo to seek some assistance. I was directed to their Discord server, 
And within two minutes, I was talking with more than one Headscale developer. They were welcoming and helpful, and we actually discovered my issue was due to a bug in the Headscale code. I filed a bug, and the fix was merged within a week. I wanted to highlight this project because the process was so pleasant and felt truly community-led. The people working on the project really believe in it and are open to input and contributions. That is great to hear. I have also had a great experience. I have a business relationship with them. Um, They are a sponsor of Self-Hosted, so disclosure there. If you'd like to sign up and get uh, a personal account for free with up to 20 devices, (laughs) it's tailscale.com slash SSH, I think. (laughs) But uh, I have interacted with them from that side. And uh, a couple of the people I chatted with were already self-hosted listeners. So that's always a good sign because it shows you they're really into this stuff. If if they're listening to my geeky podcast, you know, <laughs> they must really like this stuff. And that's a kind of a sign to me that the staff are into it. Uh, and I've had a good experience. Um, the same, too, I will say, kind of a same line of thinking is I feel like I always have to give an honorable mention right here to the Nebula project. Both Wes and I have had great uh, interactions with the Nebula developer. It has been also a great solution for Mesh VPN network. Um, so it like it's really nice to see some good options in this space right now. Now, we kind of got in trouble last week because, uh, well, we didn't plan last week's episode, much like this episode was completely unplanned. And so uh, we were just going in the, with the flow, and I think we ended up hurting some sensitive ears. Yeah, we actually got a piece of mail that I think at once is both wonderful to hear and also some really good criticism that I think... I agree with. So Gene wrote in about our last episode. He said, my toddler and I tend to listen to your podcast in the car. That's the part where I think is really great. I had to turn Linux Unplugged 448 off partway through because you all were continually saying F-U-C-K. And that's not exactly what I want him parroting at daycare. I'm really disappointed that we couldn't listen to this episode together, but even more disappointed that there was no warning at the top of the show that this episode was going to not be kid-friendly. I'd really appreciate it if you all would keep kids in mind when choosing your language for the show, as I really like sharing these shows with mine. I thought that was great feedback. Um, It was tricky because the project itself, if you both remember, was called Brain F. Yeah, Brain F. And that was hard to get around. Um, but any thoughts on this? You know, this is definitely something that we bounce around a lot inside internally because we don't believe in sort of pretense of pretending we're something we're not. But at the same time, you know, I'm a dad and I get this. I think for the most part, uh, we have very rarely sworn on this show just because we want everybody to be able to listen. And we don't want that to be a barrier for why you listen. And we also love the idea of kids listening. I think that, you know, getting kids into technology, especially something that's focused on open source, free software, and not centralized, you know, typical things like Instagram and social media. I think that's a great, I think that's great to get kids thinking in that direction. I think where it gets maybe tricky is that we're not, we're kind of in the gray area in that I don't think we're thinking about kids explicitly when we're crafting the show or, you know, like that's not necessarily where I get the target audience, even yeah. if it's a welcome subset. And then at the same time, we're not explicitly like some other podcasts. We're not explicitly saying that we're an adult only show. Right. 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 Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there is, it's just a balance that I think we walk, like we don't make this show for any one particular audience, but we try to consider as many of them as possible. That's probably the way to put that, you know, and often the feedback that we get in that regard, as you just heard is, has a tone, you know, I'll just leave it at that. And so that sometimes makes it hard to internalize that feedback in a way that 
doesn't make me angry. But uh, I think when you hear the message that they're trying to get to, it's pretty understandable. Yeah, I think um, asking for a heads up is entirely reasonable. We heard from a lot of people about Bookstack, and David wrote in, he said, I've been using Bookstack for a few months, and I think it's superb. It's really elegant, it's easy to use, and it can be used internally for organizational info. And I also uh, got a, I think Cole recommended Bookstack as well. Is that right? Lyndon also wrote in, said that I'm using Bookstack for way too much. (laughs) It might be too good. That's great. I I like when people tell us where they're coming in from, too. Like, David's coming in from Wales. That's amazing. Aw. Keep that up. I think that's great. Trev wrote in to say, uh, Trev was on fire this week. I think I saw Trev write into a couple of shows. Uh, as an Emacs user, I use the uh, vulnerable org mode to organize my notes, agenda, reminders, and long time tasks. Uh, yes, we should have given org mode an honorable mention. We did an episode of self hosted on org mode. Yeah, that was a great episode. If you'd like to check that out. All right, moving right along. This is a lot of feedback, you guys. So I'm kind of moving at a quicker clip here. But uh, we also got some mentions for Obsidian. Obsidian, I believe, has also been talked on uh, talked a bit about on self-hosted. I am not somebody who I, I Obsidian is doesn't just doesn't work for the way I work. But I think it works for a lot of people, especially people who like to link things to other things mm-hmm. and then have visuals that show them their cluster of linkages. Obsidian can be great for that, and it's also a markdown. Editor. Crafts on crafts on crafts. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Whew. I got to take a break from that. It was too much. It's a lot. of it, So this is actually maybe a chance for me to get into a little bit of a soapbox uh, thing, if I can. Do you want the uh, the walnut soapbox? What kind, which- it needs to probably hold some weight for a bit. Let's be honest. I could stand to lose a few pounds. And this is a big soapbox here. And now, as the French say, it is time for Le Boost. So I want to talk about these boosts for a minute because uh, you probably heard we've been doing these in the damn show. They hardly make any damn sense. Most of you don't know what the hell they are and you don't know why all of a sudden we're doing them. And I want to talk about this because uh, this right here is, I th- I hope, the very groundwork for a revolutionary way to monetize free software and content that can remain independent. And I'm going to start here. Uh, this is... We're going to have a little dad time now, and I'm just going to tell you the way something is, and you're just going to have to accept it. And that is that independent podcasting has about three years left, maybe five if you've got a huge established audience. And outside of that, it's going to be Mad Max territory for independent podcasts. It's getting bad. YouTube is large. And it is specifically reaching out to do to podcasters to move to its platform. But you may have already heard that. What you do not know, because you have not been in these conversations, but I and friends have been in these conversations, is that traditional podcast sponsors have found that YouTube works better for them than podcasts do. They're wrong, but here's their rationale. And when you hear it, you're going to see why they, why they do this. Number one, they love the idea of link down in the description. They think that makes more engagement. And uh, they think that means that people click through easily more often because the link's right there down in the description. Number two is that YouTube is a giant centralized platform that generates a lot of metadata about its audience and about the creators and about the interconnections between those creators and audience. That allows sponsors to build tooling 
to essentially slice and dice the market up for them. So they can go in and say, I want 10,000 people that are interested in this. And I want to get, I want to get this percentage of women. And I want to get a content creator who's also connected with this content creator. And I want to ride this hype wave over here. And um, what they, what they do, and it's disgusting is they will engage directly with these channels and they will do sponsored videos with absolutely no disclosure that that video is sponsored or it'll be like a really limp att- uh, attempt at it. Like maybe down in the description, it'll say sponsored by, and it turns out like the manufacturer of the laptop was the one sponsoring the entire video, but they don't actually say that in the video. That kind of stuff is rampant on YouTube. And the reality is sponsors love it. They love that kind of native ad stuff. They love it. They love that they can use generic tooling and they love that they can buy five or 10 creators in a couple of clicks and that those creators don't even have to disclose, even though they're supposed to, they don't even disclose that they're being sponsored sometimes. They love that kind of stuff. Then you've got Spotify who's squeezing the market, trying to centralize over there. Now, independent podcasting that's unmonetized, well, that's a hobby and that's going to just continue as people prefer. But Unique, crafted content that is the sole focus of content creators is is fading. It's going away. I mean, honestly, how many Linux content creators do you know that actually do Linux content creation full time? Counting myself, I can think of Joe. So that's two. Everybody else has contract work. They got side gigs. Maybe Nick over the Linux experiment is doing it full time. I'm not sure, but it's like maybe no more than three or four content creators. And then you got Larble over at Pharonix. When you start getting into the written media, you got a little bit more. You got Joe 8 OMG Ubuntu. You've got LWN. But again, this is like under a dozen at all for this entire ecosystem. Like I think our niche is particularly vulnerable to this problem. And this brings on an obvious need for a change, which is why this conversation around the boosts has been coming up more. And memberships that we launched a little while ago, because I'm trying to get ahead of this thing. I have been doing this for 15 years, and I figure I've got about five years left to figure out how to make this sustainable forever. It's been a good run, but the music's coming to an end. And when I first saw Boost, what I saw was, okay, that's a great way for somebody to contribute a one-off contribution. And I thought, okay, I could really see how that also work with free software. Like the, the two are very clear for me. And we are the world's largest Linux podcast. So if we help establish a system like this that people adopt and consider normal, then that may actually help move the needle a little bit like that. It, it, we, if we do the groundwork here, it may actually open the floodgates at one point. Like there's a real possibility for the show to make a difference in this area. And it's early, right? Like my peers don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. Like they don't even know. They think I've lost my mind. They don't even have any idea because it's so new and they're focused on what they do, right? Like, so it's early days still. But what I have noticed now that we've been doing the boost for a little bit is there's something extra special there. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background here. The cheapest, easiest, simplest way to comment is always going to lead to the worst comments. YouTube and Reddit are an example of this. Very low friction to leave a comment. Very little individual thought has to go into each comment. And so you just get the worst comments. You step it up to Telegram and Twitter. Things get a little bit better, but not much. You know what I'm talking about. Then you step it up to email. There, things usually get pretty good. You know, you get a range of the type of feedback, but it's generally been thought through. Uh, It's often a couple of paragraphs long. It's not very, not great 
in uh, on the back end in terms of us having to process it and put it on air and try to read through it in a way that doesn't put you to sleep and that kind of stuff. But you get links, you get references, you get an actual full thought out email like that. That was what email has been the peak of feedback. And that's why we push people to the contact page. But boost hit that golden ratio in a way that is fundamentally a big improvement for the production of the show. Because the feedback that comes in, because A, you have to have one of these new podcast apps, newpodcastapps.com. B, you got to put some change in this wallet on this podcast app. And then C, you got to subscribe to our show or listen to our show in the podcast app and send us a boost in there. That eliminates 90% of people almost. And it's changing, right? It'll be 80%. And then it'll be 70%. Just like the Linux desktop has been, just like Matrix has been, just like everything that our audience has pioneered. Early adopters start, and our audience is always some of the very first to try something that's a sensible technology. And so it, it kind of self-selects who's giving us feedback at the same time. They're like limited to 300 characters. So it's easy for us to process and consume them, and we can actually export them and sort them by show, and we can see what show they were listening to if they want to include that information. And they have the opportunity to give us a little bit of value. And sometimes it's like a hundredth of a penny, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes it's like a couple of bucks. And it comes into a system that we can process and then put into the show in a way that's quick. And it gives the audience a chance to buy in, right? It gives them a little bit of ownership. It gives them an opportunity to contribute something and supply a message. It's created this manageable, valuable channel for feedback and ideas that are coming into the show that are giving us ideas to try things we've never even considered before. And I just never expected that when we started using the boost. And so that's why we've been featuring the boost more. And because I think the ideals of the podcast index and the podcasting 2.0 movement are necessary for the long-term sustainability of independent podcasting. And that independent podcasting that has traditionally been ad financed is going to have to go through some bit of transition. It may not be a hundred percent transition. And I don't know, it's going to be different for everybody, but that S is coming. And I think a lot of the people around me haven't even figured out until they're listening to this episode. And then they're going to listen to the words I'm saying, and they're going to realize I've been doing this for a long time, and I know what the hell I'm talking about. And they're going to have to start making a change. Just like that bill's been coming due in free software. But I think we have an opportunity here to do it right, and to do it in a way that orients everyone's priorities to the audience or to the software creators. It's a huge movement that could be happening. And it's not just this show. So I think that's the other thing to consider. So that Right there is my soapbox. Why don't we do our first boost? The boost. Um, awesome. Matt wrote in again, and he said, really enjoying episode 448. The encrypted show notes idea is great and would love to see that again. I, I would do it again. I had a lot of fun doing that episode. Yeah, I, but you can't pick the same encryption. No, I'd have, I think you're right. I think we'd have to come up with a new, a new method. Maybe could we allow for linking to our show notes? So like, maybe all you have to encrypt is the URL. Is that too much of a cop-out? Because then that wouldn't be this massive chunk of text. Yeah, all right, all right. Yeah, you'd allow? You'd allow it? I suppose some sort of uniform resource locating okay. system. Right. We'll start uh, brainstorming on, uh, on that. All right, oh, watch out, Wes. Here comes one. Oh, this one's from Sexy Pants. Excellent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe you should start a podcast covering your life with ADHD. There's a YouTube channel that covers it, howtoadhd.com. Maybe you should reach out to them and do an interview. I don't know. I too suffer from the beast and it's just such a pain and makes things so hard. 
Hmm. What do you think about that, Chris? And a podcast on it, huh? Maybe like a, we could do an extra. Um, you know what's funny about that whole ADHD thing? Uh, I was diagnosed as a young lad and then re-diagnosed in my late 20s. But I feel like I was always in denial that it affected me. Like, oh, I've got control over this. I can manage this. Mm. And being a dad, <laughs> I realize that is not true. I actually do. This is actually a real issue. This ADHD thing is real. And sometimes I have no governance over what my mind switches focus to. And it can be really tricky. I mean, even when we're doing this show, I've got a pen in my hand right now so I can jot down notes so that way I don't squirrel away and forget that I was going to talk about something. So I've kind of, you know, created myself a few tools to manage it. But how to ADHD.com sounds like uh, the place that he uh, liked a lot. So thanks for sending that in. That is something to think about. I'd like to, I, I think talking about challenges of how to optimize how you work, how do you get in the zone? How do you do, how do you do whatever you do really well? I love talking about that stuff. I feel like it's not like a love topic, but I'd be willing to talk about it somewhere. sometime. Yeah. maybe a live stream or something could do that. Pew. Nick wrote in, he said, Hey guys, listening to LUP448. And I just heard you mention Tor. Check out Onion Share, an open source tool that lets you share files and even host a small website. Thanks for the show. And it's at onionshare.org. Um, also, just a quick pause before we get into it. This is another thing I like about the boosts is Nick sent that in while we were talking about it. So he's hearing us talk about it in the app, right? And he's hitting the boost button while we're talking about Tor, which I just think is super cool. Have, have, we, have we talked about Onion Share before? I feel like that must have come up oh, on the show. no. You know, there's a flat pack. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. This is, I feel like maybe not getting enough attention when I started looking at Onion Share because it, yeah, it lets you share files and receive files and send files and all that kind of stuff. But it's also a chat client. So you could do like a private chat over Tor. You can generate URLs to link people to files and or to receive a file. It's got all that kind of stuff. Plus, it's got this static website hosting that lets you host a static website on Tor. What? I mean, Probably not the way you're going to want to run a serious website, but if you're just looking for something for a day or two or whatever, I mean, I don't know. This is really a lot. Like that hosting a static website kind of takes it up to the next level. Like the sending files and chatting, that almost feels like table stakes. But then I see you host a website. I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> Looks like a nice little experience too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, man. Check out onionshare.org. That looks really good. We were, we have been talking about uh, Tor behind the scenes. And interestingly, if you go into the matrix and you look at the LUP feedback channel in matrix, uh, they're like, that's what they've been talking about for the last week. <laughs> in there is tour right. and onion stuff. And, and just discussing like uh, how onion URLs work. It's actually a really cool conversation. And there's some conversation in there about obsidian as well. So onionshare.org, go check that out. And then one last thing while we're talking about uh podcast and the boost. There are now 5,000 podcasts, according to Kevin Rook, that are on the Lightning Network for monetization. 5,000 podcasts. So while it may sound early in our circle, where we are at in the, in, in the Linux community, there are other communities that are making this work and have figured it out. And uh, I, that's where I'm kind of seeing some parallels that I think could apply to the free software community and what we're doing here. That's it. That's it. Are you good? Are we good? I got it. I got it out of my system. Thank you for letting me get on my soapbox. It, you know, it helps. Rock to the front of the line. You can keep the box. <laughs> that's just because my my feet were messy, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Boost to gray. He spilled some onions too. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. I see you snuck a pick into today's dock there, Chris, or at least what remains of today's dock. Heroic Games Launcher, an open source GOG and Epic Games Launcher, you know, for the stuff that isn't on Steam. Just basically that. And if you're getting yourself a deck, it's a lot easier to just go the flat pack route for stuff. And that's why I thought this is some pretty good timing for the Heroic Game Launcher to land as a flat pack. So I have a link to it up on FlatHub. And it's like what Wes said. You can bring in your GOG games and probably more importantly for me, like I've got like maybe one Epic game ever. But I, and I, and I, you know, what am I going to do? Install the Epic Windows software thing. It's just junk. So this lets you bypass all of that. And if you have yourself one of them uh, Deckard Kane devices, you can put this on there. And then maybe tell us about it. Yeah, actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'd be really curious. Let us know. You could tweet us at Linux Unplugged or the feedback page is linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Or you know what? Send us a gosh darn boost. We'd love to get those too. And uh, we have that up during the day. I watch them come in as people say stuff to us. And then links to everything we talked about today at linuxunplugged.com slash four four night. Keep an eye out. We'll probably do some either. We'll either do an episode of Linux Unplugged or we'll do an extra in the future all about IPFS. We did a lot of work on it. We just we feel like it deserves a little more breathing room, you know? You know, you can always subscribe to some sort of all-shows feed if you just didn't want to worry about where that might show up. Some kind of all-shows feed. Then you just get it all. The self-hosted show, the Coda Radio Show, Linux Action News, which is a great companion to this show. And of course, when we do an IPFS special or an extra or whatever, and this here show. You could also become a member at jupiter.signal and support us that way, and you get access to all the shows on the network, ad-free, the extended LUP recording, self-hosted post-show, and much more at jupiter.party. I think I think that's what it is. Come Go party check with us at jupiter.party. There you go. <laughs> that's pretty good. Okay. All right. See you back here next time.